Friends, it's a delight to be with you and kicking off a new series on 1 Samuel, starting at uh, this chapter 16 and looking at the life of David over the coming weeks. Uh, I hope you'll really get a lot out of digging into God's Word. I encourage you to keep it open, uh, 1 Samuel 16 in particular, as we'll um, refer to that. Uh, page, what was it, 226 uh, for you. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I watched the uh, new jo- the Joker movie. I think it won um, the Academy Award Best Picture. Has anyone seen uh, the the Joker? There's three or four of you. Well, the rest of you, hopefully, you can just uh, pick it up as we go. Uh, the, it, it's a good movie. It's a confronting movie, uh, and there's this great scene in there. Um, uh, with Arthur, who later becomes the, the Joker, uh, as he's watching his favourite TV show, and it's live with Murray Franklin. I uh, think David Letterman, he's a talk show host, played by Robert De Niro, uh, and, and, and Murray Franklin is a superstar, uh, and someone that Arthur really uh, admires and, and looks up to. And while he's watching this show live with Murray Franklin, he, he imagines himself transported into the show, uh, into the live audience. And, and so he has this sort of imagined dream where uh, Murray uh, picks him out from the crowd and, and, and is, is chatting with him. And then after a little bit of a chit-chat, uh, the, the crowd sort of, he, he invites him down the front to, to join him in front of, you know, live camera, live audience and, and the band's playing and the audience is, is, uh, is clapping and he, he comes down the front and then, uh, he imagines, uh, as, as it goes to an ad break, the show goes to an ad break, he imagines Murray, uh, this superstar affirming him by saying, there's something special about you, Arthur, I can tell. That, that was great, Arthur. I mean, I love hearing what you had to say. It made my day. You see, you see all this, the lights, the show, the audience, all that stuff, I'd give it up in a heartbeat to have a kid like you. Then this superstar Murray gives him this big warm embrace and the music starts flowing and then Arthur snaps back to sitting in front of the TV show. It was just a dream. It was a dream about being seen and appreciated by a superstar and by an audience, by everyone. But it was just a dream. But it's something that often we all long for. In fact, it often is a thing that motivates so much of what we do. I forgot to show you the the picture. Uh, There he is coming down the front with... Uh, You can't quite see, but the crowd applauding him, the lights on him, the band, the cameras and and all that affirmation being seen and appreciated. And it's something that motivates us and a lot of what we do. And it was definitely something that motivated Saul. Uh, If you want to flip back to chapter 15, uh, uh, verse 12, um, it says of King Saul... Saul has gone to Carmel where he has set up a monument in his own honour. Saul has gone to Carmel to set up a monument in his own honour. Do do you know many presidents, prime ministers uh, who set up monuments uh, in their in their own honour? Well, well, there are some, aren't there? Especially in the ancient world. Saul has set up a monument in his own honour. So just like Arthur in The Joker, he desperately wants to be seen and appreciated. 
Uh, I don't know about you, one of the most affirming uh, experiences of, of my life was when in Melbourne uh, a renowned bishop uh, handpicked me and headhunted me from the role that I was in to go and be the youth and young adult minister at one of the most successful, largest and prestigious Anglican churches in Melbourne. It was incredibly affirming to be seen and appreciated by someone that I looked up to and handpicked for such a big and important role. It feels good to be seen and appreciated. Uh, if you stay in verse 15, later on in verse 30, after King Saul has um, made a complete mess of everything, he's rejected God, God has rejected him, uh, and after, just on the heels of um, Samuel saying that God's rejected you, he says to Samuel, I've sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. In other words, okay, okay, Samuel, sure, God's rejected me. Okay, that, 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 okay, good, fine. But please, can you honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel? Um, in that role that I was headhunted for, after three years, I basically burned out. It was a complete failure. And because it was such a public role and a, a public church, my failure and my burnout was, uh, was, was public uh, and, and seen. And I desperately wanted not to be seen, wanted my failure and my humiliation to not be seen. It was like I was saying, but, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. And you know, um, there's this incredible contrast uh, in the story between Saul's demise that we see uh, finishing in, in chapter 15 in particular and David's rise in chapter 16 because Saul is desperate to be lifted up, to be seen and appreciated. Uh, he's working for an identity that is achieved. This is what you can sometimes might call justification by works. He's trying to be lifted up. And so it's from the highest of heights that he falls and is brought down low. And yet the contrast with David is astonishing because what we see in this story is that he's a nobody from nowhere, unseen, unheard, and yet he's lifted out of total obscurity to become the greatest king Israel ever knew and the forerunner of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. It's an incredible and astonishing contrast. David receives, has an identity that is received. It's what you call justification by grace, through faith, not by works. He was just out in the middle of nowhere, and nobody lifted out of obscurity, did nothing to achieve it. It was an identity that's received. And it feels good to be seen and appreciated. And so the story that we're looking at today is a lot about seeing. Uh, the Hebrew word for see actually occurs nine times uh, in the passage. Um, so, so I'll take some of the reference. The English doesn't pick up on it. But if you look at verse 1 where it says, I have provided for myself a king. It's actually, I have seen. God says, I have seen for myself a king among the nations. In verse 6, it says, Samuel looked on Eliab. Verse 7 
Do not look on his appearance, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then repeated in verses 8, 9 and 10, Samuel keeps saying, the Lord has not chosen this one. He's actually saying the Lord has not seen this one. So in many ways, the story that we're looking at today is about seeing and being seen. And the story starts with Samuel grieving and dejected and sad because of Saul's failure in verse 1. But evidently Samuel is not seeing the whole picture because God says, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have seen or provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself a king. It's a really important phrase, actually. You just skim over it. I have provided for myself a king. I want you to see the contrast between the way that David is appointed as king and the way that Saul was appointed as king. And I just want to read you some of the phrases it's in chapter 8 that we saw, see how Saul is uh, appointed. Um, and in verse 5, they say, appoint for us a king to Samuel. In verse 18, Saul, Samuel said, Saul was your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. In verse 18, God said, make a king for them. And then in chapter 12, Saul is described as the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked your king. That's the type of king that they had in Saul. But when it comes to David, verse 1, God says, I have provided for myself, a king. Now, thinking back on Saul, if you here, can you remember the type of king that they wanted? They wanted a king like the other nations. And in verse um, chapter nine, verse two, it says that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. Can you see the contrast between Saul and and David? He's the king that they wanted and that they chose, Saul was, whereas David is the king that God chose for himself. It's his choice of a king and a very different kind of king it'll turn out. But but Saul was a head taller than everyone else and um, I reckon Samuel's mum would have... That would have made her a little bit nervous, him being a head taller than everyone else. Can can you remember Samuel's mum's name? Hannah, that's right, Hannah, that's where the story opens and she's desolate, she hasn't got kids and then she gets a miracle baby in Samuel and she sings this amazing song that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and where, where she sings in the song, do not keep talking so proudly and it's interesting because the word for proudly in Hebrew is height, it's about being tall, do not, so, so, um, uh, Speaking highly of you, we talk about speaking highly of yourself. She says, do not keep talking so proudly. And, and so it's not that God has anything against tall people, you know, like don't, don't be worried like, if, if you're tall. But, but Saul's height was a symbol of his pride. It was a symbol of his pride. 
And so when Samuel was born, his mother Hannah sang a song about how the Lord humbles the proud. You might think, oh, Goliath, we'll meet him next week. And he lifts up the lowly. So of all the people in Israel who you would expect had learned this lesson that God opposes the proud and lifts up the lowly, you would think it would be Hannah's son, Samuel, who would get it, right? But fast forward to verse 6, where Samuel is checking out Jesse's sons. Who's the next king going to be? And look at what happens. When Jesse's sons came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What a crucial moment in Israel's history. We are selecting the next king of God's people. I mean, this is a very important point, choosing the next king, and Samuel got it wrong. If it was all up to Samuel, who would be king? Eliab would be king, who was just King Saul 2.0. Same stuff, different packaging. Samuel, of all people, he got it wrong. Thank God the kingdom wasn't in Samuel's hands. Now Samuel had to appoint a king over Israel which none of us will ever have to do. But we all have to live for something or someone. And so, in a sense, we all have to choose a king. I'll never forget when I heard Jamie Oliver say um, on, on one of his shows once, I don't really have a religion, my religion is food. Well, you, so you do have a religion. <laughs> you, you do have a religion, it's, it's food. Everyone has a religion, everyone has to live for something. Everybody's living for something. It might be power, it might be success, it might be approval, security, comfort, a big bank account, any number of things. Everybody has a king. The question is, how will we decide? And God says, people look at the outward appearance. That's how we decide. People look at the outward appearance. With that job that I was handpicked for, uh, if you were to look at outward appearance, Kieran was living for Jesus. This was an opportunity for him to reach more people, to share the gospel, uh, and have a, a, la- a bigger opportunity to expand the kingdom. That, that was the outward appearance. The inner reality? What was going on in my heart? I was living for approval. I wasn't living for Jesus. Well, we're always mixed, aren't we? This is an opportunity to climb up the ministry ladder, to prove my worth, to show people how amazing I am, that I got handpicked for this job in this most significant church. It's amazing the disparity between the outward appearance and what goes on in the heart. So what are you living for? What's the outward appearance? What's the inner reality of the heart? You you would think that a minister of all people would be living for Jesus and the glory of God, right? 
Well, on, on the contrary, what better way to show how worthy and valuable you are? People look at the outward appearance. And it's been true ever since the Garden of Eden when in Genesis chapter 3, Eve looked at the fruit and she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight, but so much of the time we walk by sight and not by faith. By outward appearance. But the Lord sees the heart. I used to have terrible eyesight. Um, what, seriously, one of the worst of, of eyes that I know. Come, come and talk to me if you had worse. I had minus six, worse than minus six uh, in, in both eyes. M- most people um, don't have eyesight that bad. Um, but um, the reason I don't wear glasses is because I got laser eye surgery before I uh, came over here. And, and it was incredibly painful, like excruciatingly painful, but it worked. It was effective. And I think what we're learning here in verses 6 and 7 is that we need spiritual eye surgery from God to correct our vision. And it hurts like crazy to see what I was actually living for when I took that role. (laughs) Hurts like crazy. But God's word is incredibly powerful and effective. Well, up to now, we've been looking at the way humans see. Uh, But now let's look at the way God sees. What does God see? Uh, Because verse 7 says, the Lord looks at the heart. And then you've got this scenario where Samuel's getting um, all the, uh, Jesse's getting his sons, you know, Eliab and Shammah and and, and all the sons to come before him. And and again and again, Samuel's now eyes have been corrected and, and, and now he sees, no, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen these. And he goes through seven sons and, and finally he's like, are, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest. He's not even here. He's tending the sheep. So what does God see? What what does God look for? He he passes over the eldest, the tallest, and the obvious choice. And he chooses the youngest, which in Hebrew is literally the smallest as opposed to the tallest. The youngest, the smallest, and the kid that nobody even bothered to invite That's God's choice. So they bring him in at the end, and then at the end of verse 12, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. What an amazing feeling that would have been for David. The nobody from nowhere that nobody bothered to invite, being chosen, loved, anointed, accepted, to be seen and appreciated. Not by his brothers, not not by his dad, not really even by Samuel, but to be seen and appreciated by the only pair of eyes in the universe that count. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It seems that God rejects the pride of Saul, symbolised by him being the tallest, and the living God embraces, delights in the humility of David, symbolised by him being the youngest, the smallest, and an absolute nobody, an absolute nobody in the eyes of the world. It seems to me that the Spirit of the Lord is absolutely repulsed by arrogance, self-sufficiency, but he cannot resist pouring himself out on humility and need, the smallest and the weakest. Isn't that good news for those who are down? And isn't that terrifying for those who are proud? Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So as we begin to wrap it up and reflect on the pride of Saul and the humility of David, I think it would be pointless for me to say to you, guys, just be humble, okay? Just just be humble. Uh, Because if you could do that, what would happen? You'd you'd be proud. Oh, I'm I'm I'm. Look at me. I'm I'm humble. Um, Or or at least like. What's wrong with those guys? What's wrong with you guys? Like, why can't you be humble like me? Like, I could do it. Why can't you do it? It it doesn't work like that. Um, There was an article in the New York Times five years ago with this amazing title called The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value. Um, And it's written by a guy, Tony Schwartz. And he writes at the start, Our shared core hunger is for value. Once our basic needs are met, we human beings arguably crave value above all else. We each want desperately to matter, to feel a sense of worthiness. But then you've got to stop and ask, why is that? Why do we we feel this enduring hunt for worthiness and value? Surely it must be because deep down inside we're worried that we don't have value and and we don't have worth, feel like we're worthy. And so if we don't feel like we have value and we don't feel like we're worthy, there's, there's all kinds of ways of going about trying to feel that we do or trying to show that we do. It, it, it might be by being really successful or climbing up the ladder or being an amazing parent or being an amazing Christian or winning lots of prizes or being something beautiful or at least having someone beautiful. Or you might even become a minister like me. Because it's hard to beat that in terms of the pecking order of, of things. Now, now I have value. Look, look at me. Look what I've done. But, but, but if I say to you, stop doing that. No, no, you, you need to be humble. You, you can't. Because you're addicted. It's a desperate need. Something that we crave. You, you, you desperately need it. You can't live without it because it's filling up a deep hole inside of you. We're desperate to be seen 
and appreciated. And so he finishes this article, Tony, by saying, my search for the deepest sources of value is not over because the journey is lifelong. But I can say to you today that if you're a Christian and you truly understand the gospel, the journey is over. The journey is over. You have already found your deepest sense of worth and value. What the gospel gives you is a change of heart. It works on your heart and changes you. The gospel gives you the only form of personal identity that's not based on a value or worth that is earned or achieved. It's achieved. It's received. It's received. It's not achieved. You see, that's the incredible irony between Saul and David here because Saul was working his butt off for an identity that is achieved and in the end, he's totally rejected. But David is a nobody from nowhere, minding his own business with complete nobody in the eyes of the world. He didn't lift a finger to receive it and yet the spirit of the Lord became powerfully upon him. And so he became the greatest king in Israel and the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an identity that is received by sheer grace. He didn't lift a finger to get it. You see, the gospel gives you an identity that is received instead of an identity that is achieved, which means it's secure and stable. Whether you're up or whether you're down, it's no reflection on who you are because you have an identity in him. It's not based on your record, it's based on his record. So it doesn't go up and down like a yo-yo. Your identity is to know that you're beautiful to the only pair of eyes in the universe that really count. Even though he sees what's in your heart. And so the story of David points us forward to the Jesus of Isaiah 53, which says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This boy David, who was out tending the sheep and nobody from nowhere, points us forward to the Jesus of John chapter 1, which says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This boy David points us forward to the Jesus of John 1 verse 45 which says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And to the Jesus of Mark 6 verse 3 which says, Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he Mary's son? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Of all the people in the world, Jesus was judged by outward appearance and completely misunderstood, despised and rejected. And yet, when he was baptised, can you remember that? That's his anointing. Can you remember what happened then? The heavens opened, the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased from the only pair of eyes in the universe that really count. And our ultimate verdict on Jesus was to say, crucify him, crucify him on the cross. And yet three days later, God's verdict on him 
was for the mighty power of the Spirit of the Lord to descend on him dead in that tomb and to raise him from the dead, glorious and in victory, so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so our freedom comes by seeing and appreciating him, seeing and appreciating him, And being astonished and amazed that he sees and appreciates us. Because now we're in Christ. Remember, in Christ means in the anointed. So that picture of David's affirmation and anointing, we're in that. We we are clothed in Christ, in the anointed one. We're in the beloved. We are beloved by him because he was clothed in our rejection and shame on the cross. And this is our inheritance in the gospel. Amen? Amen.